No changes are given, and this is the No Change Given podcast with me, Sophia Herod. In this episode, I speak to Ruth James, speech therapist specialising in neurodiversity. Tell us about yourself, Ruth. So I am a speech language therapist and have been, oh gosh, when did I qualify? 2010. So for a little while now, I have pretty much always worked with autistic children. I predominantly have worked in specialist schools, so kind of more with um, children with quite high support needs um, who are kind of accessing schools that have got on-site therapy teams, that sort of thing. Most of them residential as well, so kind of they're living away from home. I'm employed in a role and then I'm an independent therapist as well. So my independent stuff is um, where I kind of then use social media and I'm exploring group supervisions for therapists and trying just to get the message out there about neurodiversity, about autism. There's a big history of seeing it as a disorder, as like um, a real medical model that's something that is wrong and needs to be fixed and trying to flip that narrative so that people can start to see autism in a more social way, that it's just people with brains that are, you know, that are different. And how can we um, get the message out really that people, you know, maybe be curious, be kind, but kind of we all jump to judgments far too quickly. And I think particularly with people that we see as different, um, you know, and I don't mean physically different. I mean, like the kind of people that you like, you know, bump into at a bus stop and they're chatting and you're like a bit like weirded out. Well, actually, if it's somebody who's autistic, who's neurodivergent, like just been a bit curious and and just been kind that that's, you know, that's just how that person is, how that person communicates. And ultimately, if you are kind of in a space where you're feeling safe and secure within that interaction, just roll with it, even if it's kind of a bit like, oh, okay, this is an odd conversation, or it just is like, this is a bit of a weird way you're communicating with me. You know, we know a lot of neurodivergent people can be more direct in the way that they communicate. So just kind of trying to promote, I suppose, generally a bit more curiosity and kindness about people um, and then thinking specifically within speech therapy and education, just trying to kind of switch how people think about autistic and neurodivergent individuals to make sure that they are included, that we're not trying to change who they are um, and get them kind of masking who they are in different environments um a lot of you know history is about basically getting neurodivergent people to be more neurotypical um and that's where we want to start the shift is that actually that's not what we want to achieve we know that a lot of neurodivergent people have poor outcomes and poor mental health um poor quality of life when they are you know a square peg trying to fit a round hole for want of a better phrase because people are making them feel like that and actually we just want to be like hey you know what here's a square hole you can fit right in and and that's okay um so I think for me my work has shifted um a lot in terms of how I work and how I practice um because I'm just trying to get the message out to people that actually we can do this differently we can do it better that was a really long way of answering that question, but hey. <laughs> Longer the better. <laughs> they are open-ended questions. They are meant yeah. to be answered. <laughs> so I love that. Thank you. But I will go into it. So when you mentioned the fact that you might meet someone at the bus stop, for example, who might have been neurodiverse, how do you know that they're neurodiverse? You're not just talking to someone who potentially is a threat or so, you know, maybe they are saying things that you're uncomfortable with. Because actually the other day I was taking my son to a class 
And one of the people who worked there, they were quite blunt with me. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure about you looking after my child. And apparently a lot of the kids think that he doesn't like them uh, in the specific class that I'm talking about. And I mentioned it to another mum. I said, how do you feel about the way that that coach interacts with you? And I feel terrible about it. And she said, oh, no, he's, he's autistic. It's not anything against you. That's just the way he is. And I was like, oh, my gosh, of course. And my, I felt like my brain just opened up. And I thought, I feel terrible. Like I didn't have the compassion in that moment. I was just thinking of a reflection sort of as, as a protective mother, I suppose. What's this person like? Is he going to be good with my child? But I want to look back at that situation and think, how can I do that better for that person who is neurodiverse? But also, how can I not judge again in that moment? Do you know mm. what I mean? Because you don't want to ask someone. So what? how do you know? I think it is really difficult. I think ultimately it boils down to your level of safety and security. If you don't feel safe and secure in an interaction with someone, then step away from it as you would with, you know, any situation you didn't feel safe in. Um, and I think that's where it's trying to promote um, awareness of neurodivergent communication, because when a person is neurodivergent and they are um potentially communicating in a different way it's just the way their brain works and the way they see their world and I often find with individuals I work with it's really refreshing because I'm like okay right let's not like faff around with any of this stuff like we're just getting to the point and there is something very you know very honest about it and actually very easy because communicating with them they just say what they mean there's none of that like you know kind of going around the houses and all of that sort of you know social fluff basically that we do because we think everybody it makes everyone feel nice and so there's something really really nice about it but I think for me it's that curiosity and that kindness and that checking in with your own feelings so you're feeling like that and actually if in that moment your brain went to oh I wonder instead of oh that made me feel really uncomfortable like we sit with the feeling but actually if that curiosity kicks in you're like oh well I wonder if um and I'm sure you won't mind, but my husband, um, who has nothing to do with autism and speech therapy, but obviously is just married to me, um, he has lots where he'll like talk about an interaction and then he'll be like, but it did make me wonder if they are neurodivergent. And I think like basically if I could just clone, you know, our conversations and the way that he now thinks about things and spread that out, you know, um, everywhere because I think that's what changes if you have a bit of awareness it doesn't need to be a lot but a bit of awareness and that sort of creates some curiosity that then when you are um, interacting with people um, you then bring that brings the kindness and it brings that compassion because you're like actually I'm just maybe maybe that is just a neurodivergent individual who communicates differently to me and that's okay this is my discomfort with the interaction which ultimately often is a social construct like if everyone just talked in a really straight way and we weren't kind of you know having to read through the meaning and did they mean this and did they mean that um I think communication would be a lot more effective and a lot more efficient that would actually be really refreshing yeah. <laughs> because I do spend yeah. a lot of my time thinking how are they feeling about that you just get a sense don't you sometimes that something isn't quite right but you can't yeah. quite put your finger on it you want yeah. to explain it but then you don't want to bring it up <laughs> yeah yeah and you come away from an interaction going what did they take from that you know or somebody says something to you and you come away from it and then you start thinking about it and you're like what what did I take from that did they mean that because that's what I heard but is that actually what they meant and communication yeah. is so complex like it's so complicated and 
there is something very uh, unique about the way that a lot of neurodivergent individuals communicate, but that a lot of neurotypicals, I think because of social constructs, make it sits uncomfortably with us. And a lot of um, individuals I work with, when they find neurodivergent peers, the communication just, it just booms you know because they they're all at peace with it (laughs) they're all like you know I'll just be blunt like I'll talk over you I'll monologue about something I'm really interested in for 25 minutes and and that's me showing affection that's me like sharing you know an interest which is a really special thing to do with someone for them um and it's just it's a joy because it all just sort of fits and they are just accepting and I think that's one of the things that with a bit of awareness, we then become more accepting. So then in those interactions, you have that curiosity, you become a bit more accepting of it. Um, but equally, we don't necessarily want neurodivergent people to be walking around, like feeling like they've got to have a big badge, you know, like I'm neurodivergent, like, yeah. Um, exactly. But I think that's the long-term goal, you know, because I know a lot of people do feel comfortable to have like, you know, with COVID, the sunflower lanyards, I think people that kind of brought forward that actually the hidden disability population um, started to feel like they could be a bit more, the reason I'm not wearing a mask, here's my sunflower lanyard. Like it's something that shows that I'm a bit different, even if I don't look different. Um, And I think for a lot of neurodivergent people, that can often be the challenge because neurotypical, neuronormative people, we will see somebody, say if they're in a wheelchair or there's like a really obvious physical disability, you all already are creating a different narrative in your mind. You're creating a level of kindness and curiosity because there is a physical marker that goes in your eyes, in your brain, and you're kind of creating those links to be more compassionate. But I think with neurodivergent and sort of the hidden disabilities, um, it's not there because they, you know, these people are experiencing a different way of thinking but they look like everybody else so you know kind of your automatic is oh well aren't they rude or isn't that blunt or that interaction made me feel uncomfortable or like oh they weren't looking at me like that weirded me out but actually we need to be able to sit with our weirded out feelings because that's on us and you know and it doesn't necessarily mean that neurodivergent people have to change who they are in the way that they communicate um and I find when I I'm just, oh sorry, oh no, carry on. What were you saying? I was just going to say when I find when I'm working with um, some of the older um, children I work with, it's about kind of finding that their feet because so often they have spent such a long time being told you need to look at people when you're talking to them, you need to manage to sit still, like you need to take turns in an interaction, and all of these kind of skills that it's like, oh, you need to say hello, you need to say goodbye. When an interaction finishes, you need to kind of close it down in a certain way so people know it's finished. You can't just walk off and um don't talk about the things that you like too much. Only but you know, do a few seconds, like don't stand too close, don't stand too far away. And all of these rules that have been given to them. And there's a real big process of unlearning with them to be like, actually do what makes you feel comfortable um and then it's on other people like I am not advocating and working with these children saying you know like be uh, I don't know unsafe be something that is going to cause all sorts of issues for you in the future in terms of accessing education and accessing the workplace but actually you should feel comfortable if you don't want to look at someone because that pains you in the eyes or because that just makes you feel uncomfortable don't do it Like, we don't look at people when we talk to them all the time. So there's not that kind of 
expectations. So I think there's a real, you know, kind of drive with a lot of individuals who are neurodivergent to say, you guys need to kind of start to realise who you are underneath all of this social stuff that you might have spent years been told is the right way to be, even though it's made you miserable, uncomfortable, you know, kind of all sorts of things. I think it's a really um, interesting conversation that's going on at the moment about neurotypical interactions with neurodivergent people and how do you do you want to be like before we start I'm autistic or do you want to just not disclose it you know how does what does that look like um so it's a really yeah it's a really kind of complicated area um I think in terms of how we do advocate and move forward and like you say rather than wanting to go sorry you autistic because if they turn around and say no you're like oh now where do we go from here yeah it's just not yeah yeah, you can't ask (laughs) it it is a really difficult conversation though as well because obviously I 100% wholeheartedly really want people to be able to be themselves I think Mm. that is such a sad world if you can't be yourself if you're looking at people in the eye because society says you have to but there is so much that needs to change for that to be allowed to happen as well Mm -hmm. so if you say you know as you say you wouldn't advocate them being unsafe or anything um you wouldn't encourage them to be unsafe but there is a point where you almost do have to fit in at the moment within society the way that our structure is set up and with Mm -hmm. things like the nhs being squeezed so i actually had a guest on uh, who uh went to the michael palin Mm -hmm. center and he had a stutter so he's autistic he said as well and uh he was lucky enough to go there, but he went to a normal secondary school for a while. And he said his life was just absolute hell. Mm. But with the times changing and the NHS being squeezed, how likely is it for people to be able to get help and be in places where they feel safe? But then if you are somewhere where you feel safe, how do you then go out into society where you're just kind of let out without awareness? How does that work? Yeah, it's something I talk a lot about within the special schools context, because I'm like, you know what? These individuals can function brilliantly, but they're in this bubble that is totally um, accepting. It's supporting, it's nurturing, it is advocating. And it's like this and I call it a bubble because it is like and when these, you know, children hit 16, hit 18 and they're moving into higher education or the workplace, like they're not in that same space you know there are specialist colleges out there that some individuals will access but if you're going from like a special school or a school where he has you know a mainstream school that has created an environment that is neurodivergent friendly that is doing really well in terms of their inclusion you're then going into somewhere that's likely not to be you know um i think there is an awful lot of work going on and that needs to continue within our early years and um, our education system to try and promote neurodivergent um, awareness and acceptance among children because ultimately that's the future generation so we know that if children in you know neurotypical children understand neurodivergent children they see the differences and they accept those differences and they can be inclusive then they are going to be in the workplace in the future and they are the ones who are going to then be more accepting of colleagues who are neurodivergent and, you know, going to be seeing reasonable adjustments as perfectly reasonable rather than like an over and above or, you know, a stressor. It's just going to be, well, that's just what they need because hopefully that's what they will be growing up with. Um, 
And I still think that stage is like way off, you know, it's happening, but it's like dropping the ocean happening rather than, you know, something across the board. But I think it's looking at um, then how we can support those individuals. And what I I tend to work a lot on is what we would think of as perspective taking and perspective seeking. So, for example, if an individual has had an interaction that's been unsuccessful, we would then explore what was their perspective and how did they seek the perspective of the other person or how did they take the other person's perspective? So if it is a neurodivergent and a neurotypical interaction and something has not gone quite right, you know, somebody's ended up upset or, you know, there's been some confusion, the message hasn't quite got through as clearly as possible, been able to take the other person's perspective and it doesn't necessarily mean changing how you've done it, but just that understanding of why that issue may have occurred is a really good sort of starting point. Um, so we do a lot of work around perspective um, because I feel like then being able to just understand, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be different, but then at least you can say, oh, no, I see what happened there. You know, and then maybe you can repair that because you can say, I'm really sorry, like it's the way I communicate or, you know, I can see what went wrong here now. Or you must have thought that I meant that when I said that, but I didn't. So starting to build those, that kind of perspective taking, being able to seek somebody else's perspective on it and repair interactions. So it's not saying do it differently, but actually recognise if it hasn't had the outcome that you want it to have. Um, So those kind of bits of work have been are important you know alongside trying to um basically help them feel okay about themselves there are a lot of neurodivergent individuals with chronically low self-esteem because of the the narrative around them for so long and if we can boost their self-esteem and boost their confidence and actually get them to accept who they are you know for a lot of people autism is a really scary concept it's a scary word for a lot of children it makes them feel different you know kids can be cruel um and they may have experienced bullying they may have experienced being left out at school they may have experienced poor educational outcomes because the teachers weren't able or willing to support them in the way that they needed and if we can start to help them feel good about their neurodivergence um you know particularly for me it's working with autistic and adhd individuals if i can start to make them feel okay about it and we can think about it in a more positive way they can then advocate for themselves and ultimately that's the goal because if they're able to say I am who I am I'm autistic and I might be a bit blunt so you know your coach that you've been chatting to if he kind of felt that he wanted to share that to advocate with parents and say you know at the beginning of a new term there might be a letter or it might be a you know I am autistic I communicate in a a way like this like so just to let you know, there's not a big deal, but it's just advocating for himself to say, so, you know, this is this is how I do things. And then suddenly that's a different space to be in and a different space within the interaction. But we can start to work on that now with neurodivergent people because that then shapes society around them. If they feel confident going to an interview, for example, when they finish school, like, hi, I'm autistic or I have ADHD, so I'm going to be like wiggling in my chair or I've actually got this like, you know, this fidget that I'm just going to be using while I'm listening to you. It just helps me focus on what you're saying. And 
they're able to advocate for those things. I think that's a really good starting point. What you then face is interviews going, oh, not sure what that means. How do we accommodate that in the workplace? Oh, I don't know. You know, and that's the the kind of the the other side of the coin, isn't it? That we're working with with two different groups of people. Um, but there's some fabulous work going on, particularly within the workplace. And a lot of neurodivergent advocates are going now into some really big companies and doing presentations for the staff teams about neurodivergence and accommodations in the workplace um, and how to support neurodivergent people. And there is an awful lot going on in terms of recruitment where companies are specifically asking for neurodivergent. Um, and I saw a post the other day, I can't remember who it was, um, but it was a big employer particularly looking at neurodivergent females. And I was like, this is really a kind of an exciting shift that people aren't going, okay, not sure how I feel about that and can we support that person? They're going, come on in because we recognise the strengths that neurodivergence can bring to a team and bring to um you know bring to the workplace and that's something that i think with the younger generation of neurodivergent people we can start because we've got evidence now we can be like no look you guys can go into the workplace you can do things because look here are job adverts here are people wanting people like you and so i think for those um you know um who are accessing their education and able to um you know get the qualifications required for some of these roles there there is very much potential um and that can only be a good thing as people start to make that shift you know to being a little bit more accepting um and if anything inviting which is great that is so exciting isn't it that really is fantastic and actually as you said it's on us so it is on the employer to try and find ways where neurodivergent people can be welcome in and actually my son's school He's got neurodivergent children in his class, but that's just part of the class. That's just, mm -hmm. you know, it's so normal to him. And I just love that. And, you know, one of them's his really good friend and, you know, he's always been his really good friend and he doesn't see him as different or, you know, he's just really accepting of the way that he is. And also mm -hmm. to his friend, he's different. So his friend's accepting of him too. So it's like a beautiful relationship that we can have. Um, I do want to take it back a step, though, because you've mentioned a few words. So neurodivergent, what is neurodivergent? Obviously, we've mentioned autism, but also neuro, what's the neuro norm? Is what neuro, oh, neurotypical? Yeah, yeah, those words. <laughs> if you could yeah. explain those, that'd be amazing. Yeah. So neurodiversity as a whole, um, that was it's kind of been around since the 1990s, but it's really gaining traction now. Um, and oh, Judy Singer. Julie Singer, Judy Singer, I think. She is like a socio sociologist, I think. She coined it to look at um, a term that basically looks at the fact that there are all sorts of different brains. So neurodiverse is like everybody. It's, it's you, it's me, it's autism, it's dyspraxia, it's everything. It's just that brains are different. So when we talk about neurodiversity, that is just the world of brains, you know, that all brains are different, think differently. Um, when we think about a brain that is typically developing, we just talk about neurotypical or some people prefer, prefer neuronormative. Um, so just basically like, yeah, developing in the way that you would expect a brain to develop. Um, I think some people feel a bit uncomfortable with neurotypical because it's like that whole what even is normal, like that kind of yes. um, thing. So some prefer neuronormative, but basically that is kind of, you know, the way that you would expect most brains to develop and then neurodivergent are brains that diverge from that typical development 
And there is a, a growing list of people who identify as neurodivergent. So we think of like the, the top hitters that usually come through under that are autism, ADHD, um, and then your specific learning difficulties. So dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, but also um, things like developmental language disorder, which is the most common what is it? The most common disability that you've never heard of in a classroom. Um, shocking statistics about developmental language disorder in classrooms. Um, and then um, things like um, mental health differences um, and, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia. So there are a lot of different um, individuals who would identify as neurodivergent because their brains are just doing things differently. Um and I think it's really that's where it can then become like a really big conversation because there's so many different um, individuals who would identify with being divergent um, and the list yes, goes I on. I would say that's most people. Is yeah. that, I mean, I, in not in a, I really um, respect and know that, you know, these differences between us need to be respected. But then so many people I know are, are dyslexic. Mm-hmm. So then that's such a broad Mm-hmm. word for so many different types of people I almost yeah. think then people with more complex diversities need their own name as well because yeah. just to honor what they they are going through as well like you know how they are different and to be respectful of them in that way I think within that very broad word yeah. you need I to think... have a more almost separate areas <laughs> I suppose don't you is that right um for me personally I would say no I think I okay. feel as though you one can identify as neurodivergent or not so if you're dyslexic and you have fairly low support needs you can manage your dyslexia yourself and you you know don't feel like you need reasonable adjustments you are able to function day to day then you might feel like actually I don't want to identify as neurodivergent I don't feel like I need to necessarily disclose being dyslexic to people um I might drop it in now and again in a conversation but it's not you know it's not not necessarily forming a big part of somebody's identity but I think again like dyslexia is one of those things that not many people know much about so actually we know that you know the sort of the expectation is about that reading and writing but actually dyslexia can have lots of different um challenges with processing um and the way that they a dyslexic person's brain works they can have challenges with more than just reading and writing and I think the same goes for um a lot of the neurodivergent um kind of people who would identify as neurodivergent a lot of that is down to the fact that we have narratives within society about what that is and Mm -hmm. so many of those narratives fit but they fit this like narrow little picture and actually it's so much broader um and so I think if somebody identifies as neurodivergent what I kind of would do within my work if I was talking about a person and like you say who felt like they experienced the world when we think about the spectrum you think about it in a linear way you've kind of got this severe experience where everything's really difficult and then you've got this like yeah we're just getting on and what we're trying to do is think about the spectrum in a different way like think about it more as a um like a picture of somebody's person, you know, the different areas where they would have strengths and where they would have challenges. So prior to 
well, to be honest, still people use terms like high functioning autism and low functioning autism. And what we want to do is move away from um, labels like that. And that would fit with a lot of neurodivergent conditions. People would talk about, oh, yeah, they're really able or they're not able. And actually what we want to look at is somebody's whole person and where are their strengths and challenges. So for somebody who is dyslexic, we might say, okay, one of their challenges is reading, but one of their strengths is that they're really creative in their thinking. And that person could have really high support needs for their reading. They could need overlays. They could need different colored glasses. They could need computer programs. They could need speech to text, text to speech you know what I mean, when you talk and it translates it for you because typing is difficult. They could oh, need yes. lots of different things to enable them to access education and access the workplace. But actually, they've got low support needs in other areas because they can, you know, go and do their shopping for themselves and they can do their food preparation. They can manage their daytime routines, like look after their own personal hygiene and nutrition. But they've got this kind of one big area of support needs that's quite high. So when we think about labeling strengths and challenges and then we look at the support needs and the level of support needs what we can start to do is create a narrative about a person so whichever you know kind of label within neurodivergence you associate with you then have a bit of a profile underneath it so for example a child who maybe is nine or ten who is non-speaking who is in a residential school for 52 weeks of the year with complex sensory processing perhaps has lots of kind of self-injurious behavior might struggle with toileting and sort of have quite um particular safe foods particular safe routines we might talk about them having high support needs in many areas but ultimately they might be an autistic ADHD with a sensory processing disorder and they're kind of the labels that fit but we can just talk about their support needs being quite high in lots of areas versus um you know the same 10 year old age who is accessing a mainstream school has a diagnosis of autism has some sensory processing differences that needs a bit of support in the classroom with having access to fidgets maybe like a weighted lap pad or a wiggle cushion so they can keep moving um, maybe needs more breaks than the other children away from the classroom just to kind of regulate before they come back in but perhaps doesn't need like a massive package of one-to-one -one and lots of extra you know so we might talk about that child as being low support needs in certain areas but for example they might have particular safe foods that they don't really diverge from that might be a you know like a a medium support need and then you might have if they've got issues with sleep and they're struggling with poor quality of sleep or getting sleep we might say they've got high support needs in terms of their sleep um so you can start it's to more, create a picture yeah so is it more about then how you identify really then that's what we're saying is the neurodivergent I suppose label as you say I don't like the, the word label no, it's horrible isn't it it's but... really not nice is it no. how much has changed in terms of that because you've been in the industry did you say for 10 how, when did you start? 2000? Oh 2010, so 13 years. Oh, gosh. There's, you know what? I think we're on, it always sounds so cliche, we're on such a journey, but I really think we are like as a as a, a profession of speech therapists, I think as a, you know, cohort of additional needs educators within mainstream and specialist schools um, and across the whole span from, you know, 
being in a nursery from six months old up until finishing higher education at whatever age, because, you know, you get mature students, don't you, coming into the university system, that I think there is a lot of shifting and a lot of positivity. So, for example, when I did my degree, I think we had like a three hour lecture on autism and that was it. And it was very simple, um, you know, like our oh, visual schedules routine. And now I know that universities are bringing in autistic speakers. They're bringing in autistic speech therapists to actually talk about autism and supporting autism. So I think there's a lot of change at a training level. Um, I think that the way that people are now starting to bring their awareness to the changes that need to be made um, and to the way that we have um, used ableism in speech therapy for a long time where we've kind of wanted people to fit in and just you've got to be able to do what we do and now we are bringing our awareness to that and starting to shift. I think there are changes happening for a lot of um a lot of people in terms of the language that they use. And that is the first shift, you know, the fact that we're talking about what is neurodiversity versus neurodivergence versus neurotypical. When do I use those words? How do I use those words? Um, and thinking about, you know, a lot of um, autistic people prefer autistic person. When I trained, it was a person with, you know, so a person with ADHD or a person with autism. And there's a shift now to listening to autistic people, which, you know, is a really novel idea, it seems. But actually, it's... Um, How it's did we not think of that before? I know. It's like somebody had a light bulb moment and you just think, oh, what? It just, yeah, it just makes you feel a bit foolish, I suppose. But by listening to the autistic community and then becoming an advocate and an ally to that community, I think then people are trying to get their message out about how we better support those individuals within, you know, the field that they're in. So if it's an autistic person who's delivering training to big companies, they can go in and they can talk about how you support a person like me in the workplace. If it's like little old me on Instagram, but just trying to share a message with speech therapists, with other people who work in education, that actually you, we need to shift how we think about these individuals and how we set goals for them, the language we use when we're talking about them, when we're writing reports. Um, and the other thing I think that I've noticed is, as you start to shift your language, you don't have to have a concrete conversation with anyone, but people start to pick up, they get a bit curious or they just go, oh, this is what we're doing now. And then everyone starts doing it. And you're like, hey, presto, like, within the space of an hour and a half or a two hour annual review, suddenly people are just shifting their language. And that's where you can see it when you start talking about, oh, you know, neurodivergent people and we're thinking about like self-advocacy and, you know, sort of co-regulation. And then suddenly everyone's like, oh, co-regulation. Yeah, we need to work on the co-reg, you know, co-regulation. Co-regulation. <laughs> oh, sorry. You know what? You f I forget. Like I go off on one and I forget. But when we think about... Um, for, a, for everybody, we get dysregulated, right? So there are times where we our emotions take over particularly and, and we don't uh, have the capacity to manage the situation how we would want to manage, you know, whether that's something that's made you angry or scared or upset, you know. 
um, or excited. We all lose it a bit, don't we? You know, your, your best friend messages you to say she's just got engaged and you like flip out because it's like, ah, this is the best news ever. And actually that's a moment of dysregulation, but it's not necessarily bad. It's just you're a bit like all over the place. Um, and for a lot of neurodivergent people, um, dysregulation is a very common experience because of the way their brain perceives the world. So they could um, struggle with, managing the sensory input and kind of regulating that you know the social side of things like having to think about social interaction what you're doing how you're doing it you know am I sitting right am I looking right like oh I can hear that buzzing noise in the background like oh what was that that just flew past like thinking about your special interests going on in the background so they can have an awful lot going on which means their tolerance to dysregulation I suppose is lower so they might hit dysregulation faster than a you know neurotypical person might and for some individuals we're looking at self-regulation so what are the skills they have to regulate themselves so you know we will all have things like it might be a hug from a partner it might be like taking some deep breathing it might be you know going for a walk like we all have things that we use to help regulate and for neurodivergent people it can be looking at either some strategies that they can use for themselves or particularly in my field when you're working with children what we would call co-regulation so where you as um, a supporting adult regulating yourself keeping yourself cool calm and collected in those tricky moments and then responding in a supportive and nurturing in a safe and secure way with that individual to help them access strategies so you're kind of doing it with them you know so for some children that might be that you're sitting down on the floor with them and they just need some deep pressure so you're giving them a big hug and you're doing some breathing you might be rocking gently for others it might be your presence so actually you just need to sit you just need to be um, it might be giving them a weighted blanket for some it might just be giving them a some weighted equipment blowing some bubbles putting some particular music on you know offering snacks and drinks because they're not able to go and get those things for themselves so where we might be like oh my god I need a coffee or I need a cup of tea and you're like okay I've got the the headspace to be able to go and do that because I know that's what I need for a lot of neurodivergent individuals that sort of bit shuts down quite quickly um and so we'd be looking at how we co-regulate with them keep ourselves cool and calm to make sure we're responding and reacting in the way that we want to and then helping them regulate to get their energy levels back in a place for whatever the task in hand was what can trigger those moments for neurodivergent people oh so many things a lot of individuals it is a sensory processing um challenge so that might be just for example being in a classroom you know for a lot of children they would be able to you know process and manage the information coming in that might be the noises around them you know the smells the sights the sounds like the way that their body feels in the room um you know process whether they're feeling hungry if they need the loo if they're a bit tired and they can sort of manage all of that to get through a lesson for some neurodivergent individuals, they would maybe find all of that a lot of hard work. And so actually then you're dealing with all of that. That's really hard work trying to focus on what the teacher says. And then they say something that you miss and you put your hand up to ask. And then they're like, oh, in a minute. And that might be enough because actually you're dealing with all of this other stuff in your brain that then that's enough for you to be like, I can't do this. And so then you need those strategies. And in that moment of I can't do this, it can look like 
all sorts of things. So we think about it often within a dysregulated nervous system. So we think about, you've probably heard of like fight or flight. Um, we think about fight, flight, and then freeze and then fawn. So for some children, they might fight, you know, you might see tables flip, chairs thrown, hitting, out kicking, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, for some, you might see them up and go because they're like, this is too much and I'm leaving the environment. Um, for some, you see that freeze and they literally just shut down, you know, in that moment where they are, they just shut down because everything is far too much. So you don't really get much response. Um, or you get the fawn, which is kind of the people pleasing, just carrying on going and I'm going to keep smiling and then I'm going to get home and all hell's going to break loose because I have like kept this up all day. And this is just, you know, so we um, hear a lot about neurodivergent um, individuals in education who go home and experience after school restraint collapse where basically they've restrained themselves at school all day that they just collapse when they get home and that can be needing to go sit in a dark room and not talk to anyone for a couple of hours it could be quite big explosive uh challenge for you know um <coughs> excuse me in terms of like presenting challenge to safety of themselves or other people in the home um, and so there's a lot that goes on in that sense where they might then just manage, you know, and you hear the same with autistic adults talking about the workplace. Well, the autistic adults experience okay. the same thing after work, you know, where they can spend all day trying their best to fit in and then they get home and it's like, I actually can't deal with anybody for so long. And um, Chris Packham recently did a brilliant uh, documentary on the BBC. Yes. Yeah, and one of the ladies in that, you, she kind of showed some amazing vulnerability to share in her video, her regulating, and she was kind of sitting and rocking like quietly. I can't recall if she was moving her hands, what we'd call a stim, you know, that was just helping her manage that dysregulation. And I think things like that are brilliant because it just starts to show a bit of an insight into what that can look like because people are dealing with all these differences and all this you know something like a change in routine can be the bit that's too much because they're taking so much on the rest of the day or a loud noise that they don't really you know really struggle with that causes pain it could be a particular texture you know or like itchy clothes or the feeling of you know seams and tags I know so many children who have specific clothing because they can't tolerate certain seams certain tags and I think um, it's kind of a combination of things that then usually leads to just this moment of overwhelm where it's like I, I'm kind of I'm managing, I'm managing, I'm managing. And then something happens that means I the way my brain is having to process and work so hard that then that's just too much now. And I, I'm going to hit this dysregulated um you know, this dysregulated space. And equally, it can be something like a social interaction with a peer where they've fallen out over playtime. And that then has caused dysregulation. But the dysregulation experienced is quite big. So then, you know, it needs what we might talk about is then having higher support needs in terms of dysregulation. You know, whereas other children you might look at having a falling out in the playground and you might be able to talk, talk it through in a couple of minutes and then everyone moves on. That might not happen in the same way for somebody who's neurodivergent. So then they have higher support needs in terms of that social repair and that dysregulation. Um, and I think the the kind of the 
things like Chris Packham's documentary and Christine McGuinness did a fab one as well that was a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think that was on the BBC and it was um, just brilliant because it opened a conversation about female autism and kind of how that presents. Like, you know, you were talking earlier about uh, how we... How do you know? No one would ever have looked at Christine McGuinness and thought, oh, she's autistic, you know, because no. it just wouldn't. And what I loved most about that was she went and met um, a group of women and they were just like having coffee and they were all autistic. And at no point would you walk into a room and be like, oh, that lady's autistic. And I think that was really powerful for kind of sharing the fact that there is not a look, you know, somebody can't look autistic. Like, there are particular behaviours you might observe and be curious about and think, oh, I wonder if that person's neurodivergent, if they're regulating. You know, I remember several years ago going to see um, the Harry Potter world place and there was oh, yeah. a little girl in the reception running in circles around her parents, flapping her hands like this, like, and then she'd stand still and like get her fingers and was really kind of doing real little finger stims right in front of her eyes. And then she'd go back to these really big arm stims and was just running in circles. And she was just so excited. You could just see she was just absolutely buzzing to be there. And through <laughs> my lens, I was looking at it and going, she's just regulating this excitement. Whereas somebody else might be looking at that thinking, why haven't they got that child standing still in the queue? Like, why is that child's why are they doing that you know kind of that wondering um and I think that for me is where it's really positive that people see these differing perspectives on autism and how like it can be a spectrum as it can be with so many neurodivergent conditions um and I think it's really powerful and I think really positive that there are things out there in the mainstream media that are promoting these conversations and exploring these things as well. Like, I'd, I'd love to know how many people actually saw it, because then you'd be thinking, oh, I wonder how many people now have a better understanding of autism, of, of what autism is. Um, but I think those things can be really powerful just to sort of help people understand the challenges and also the yeah. strengths of these individuals. Yeah, because also I think you don't hear as much about female autism. Does it present itself differently in, in women than mm -hmm. it does in men? So what's the differences there? So what's it like day to day for uh, a functioning in school child, or for example, or, or adults in mm -hmm. a workplace, but they have autism, but they're able to sort of carry on with their normal yeah. day without having too much help throughout the day? And then what's the difference between a male and a female in that same environment? So typically, um, when we think of a female presentation, um, what we kind of experience is that from an early age, girls are brought into a more social world. So the, the types of role play, you play tea sets, you play babies, you play things that are nurturing and social, you know, boys race around playing cars. And it sounds really silly, but from an early age, we can see that there are quite different ways of socialising children. Um, and so a autistic girl might experience lots of social play, but then what we find is that then they begin to kind of fit that into life in the future because they have learned the rules of social interaction from an early age within their play. 
Um, and so they can mask some of their challenges because they know what's expected of them socially, because from an early age, they've been taught about social, you know, like not consciously, but just as part of what we do. So one avenue is that, you know, women generally mask better and mask their autism um, so that they sort of fit in that they're doing the more neurotypical things what we know also is that a lot of special interests and enthusiasms for autistic people which are really kind of core part of autism and a lot of like you know strength and um personality and interest can be shared through conversations but um for a lot of girls their interests tend to span longer in terms of age so if you are a you know, a four, five, six-year-old boy and your interests are dinosaurs, but then you're a 15, 16, 17-year-old boy and your interests are still dinosaurs, like, actually, that makes you a bit different. Whereas if you are a four, five, six-year-old girl and you're really into horses and ponies, and then you're still into horses and ponies at 14, 15, well, actually, that's quite a typical interest. You know, it's uh, a hobby. It's, you know, people ride horses, people look after ponies, like, you know, People do that. And so a lot of the sort of the female interests can go further before they appear different. Um, yes, they might know an awful lot about that topic. But actually, if other people have horses or go riding or, you know, whatever it might be, there is a conversation, there is a space, particularly when you have then learned all of these social masking skills as well. Um, so for a lot of girls, we see that they are able to mask and regulate um and that they um kind of their interests don't differentiate them too much from their peers at an early age um and again it sort of depends on how successful that masking is and ultimately we don't want it to be that successful because what we then know is that an awful lot of women are misdiagnosed so you know children sort of 12 upwards when you get into that secondary school diagnosed with things like eating disorders, anxiety, depression, bipolar, you know, personality disorders. Um, and there is a lot of misdiagnosis when actually it's autism. Um, and I think that it's a really important message to get out is about kind of how those differences may present and being curious. If you've got a girl coming back to the doctors because things aren't right, things aren't working, you know, you've potentially got some disordered eating presenting itself you've got maybe some self-harm actually starting to question the, the neurological profile um i think it's very it's very common that people are misdiagnosed females misdiagnosed um or they struggle on and there's a growing body of people who 30 plus 40 plus 50 plus are then recognizing because there's more out there now and more information are going oh my god like i've spent my whole life feeling like i don't fit in struggling with things like trying to be somebody that's never felt right and now i know why you know, on those challenges I had as a kid, as a young adult trying to find my way in life, actually, they're now getting an answer that's giving them a sense of identity. That's, you know, there's a lot of processing that needs to happen. But um, documentaries like Christine's then give women a space to be like, oh, you know, like actually she's a model. Like she's a glamorous, successful woman, but she's autistic. And actually, that's what it can look like. 
you know, yes. it equally can look like the little girl that I saw at Harry Potter world running around just unable to control her excitement in the most joyful movement, you know, you've seen. So I think the more that we find out about female autism in the wider population, I think the better, because I think there's an awful lot of people who probably would label themselves as depressed and anxious. And actually, it could well be that there is something more going on neurologically that is, you know, a neurodivergent condition that's just been undiagnosed for a long time. Um, and I think... Sorry, carry on. I was just going to say, and I think it's really positive that there's more information about that now so people can start to recognise and, and improve their quality of life, you know, because they suddenly get the right support, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I think, what would you say, though, to people who think that people are over-labelling now? So some mm. people say, oh, everyone's got something now. That's, yeah. you, know, you know, those flippant comments, are they really harmful to the cause of trying yeah. to raise awareness? Well, the thing I think is, is, if you, you know, ultimately, if you had a choice between being neurodivergent or not, what would you pick? Because I think, you know, people aren't out there wanting to be neurodivergent. People are out there questioning themselves, how they fit in, having really poor mental health outcomes. And poor mental health leads to poor physical health. It leads to poor engagement in the workplace. It leads to unemployment. It leads to, you know, people in prison like there are so many things linked to poor mental health and if actually that's because you've just not been recognized as neurodivergent then actually community is all the better for it because somebody with a better understanding of themselves can then start to improve their outcomes and start to improve their quality of life and with a better understanding can then seek to build on their strengths so suddenly if instead of trying to do a job that you actually now find out is just not right for the way your brain works you could start to find one that might and then you're in the workplace you're you know contributing you're feeling your own sense of self-worth grow which might have sat dormant for quite a long time so while I understand there is this whole oh it's just cool to be diagnosed I genuinely don't think that anybody would be seeking out a diagnosis and having that kind of you know do I then tell people do I not like what kind of support do I need I just I don't feel as though that would be a thing that people would seek out you know um because it doesn't necessarily make life easy um it might make your life easier if you suddenly got something to identify with and things can start to make sense but ultimately I think people who think that everybody's got something or you know or they just think it's a fashionable label um maybe don't really understand the complexities of neuro divergence and what that can you know the potential impact on somebody's life that that can have um and ultimately that getting the right support can then make a really positive change yeah because I was thinking actually when you mentioned one of the fight or flights was to uh anger and throwing things yeah and I thought about people who end up in prison I thought how many people have not been diagnosed with autism Mm. And then they've grown up through that adult life, feeling frustrated, not knowing how to self-regulate. Mm. And mm. they're now in prison because they've reacted in a way that they almost can't control. Not obviously yeah. not everyone, but, no, but <laughs> is that the, why some people are? I think the level of undiagnosed neurodivergent individuals within the prison system, I mean, there's probably statistics out there, but it will be really high because I know young offenders are they employ speech therapists now because there is a significant 
portion of young offenders who have developmental language disorder. And if you have poor language, you have generally then poor social because you don't have the language to access social. What you might find is then you've got poor language for communicating your needs and your regulation needs. So then you might be quicker to become dysregulated. You become more vulnerable. So then you're kind of accessing a lifestyle maybe that makes you feel fit in and makes you feel cool because you're not fitting in in other circles. And um, there are an awful lot of people, I think, within the justice system who are undiagnosed um, and therefore have not got the support and haven't been given that foot up that they need in order to make a change and um, shift you know how their their life was going and that's not to say that you know there aren't other kinds of people within the justice system but I think there's probably quite a significant portion that have undiagnosed um, neurodivergence Um, and I think that's one of the you know the things when we think about is again like you think about if those people in that situation had got the support they needed from an earlier stage would that have been the outcome for them well maybe not and we know within the justice system like a lot of sectors that funding is getting pulled and that you know resources are less not more so even once they're in a place where perhaps there could be access to support it's just not there in the way that we would need it to be there in order to kind of get them the right support that they you know that would then enable them to change the outcomes for the future um and i think that is such a big part of the challenge because the resources are not there so for you know individuals who maybe need coaching and need supporting who need um you know therapy to help them understand who they are and why their brain does what they do and how to then advocate for themselves and develop those skills to to do that there's just not the access to therapy and you know and I when I say I mean speech therapists I mean counsellors psychologists like occupational therapists all of those support systems that a neurodivergent person might need that 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 is dwindling rather than growing um and I think that's that's a challenge it is scary yeah and then it's scary if you're a teacher in a classroom and you actually are seeing an increased number of diagnoses because people are more aware so I mean the waiting lists are huge so that would be a fine thing if you actually manage to get them diagnosed but yeah so how long is waiting this oh huge like you could be looking at having queries about a child's neurodivergence and it'd been two three years before getting a diagnosis in some areas and if you think about like, say that's like a three-year-old, so you've, you've maybe had some queries over development between the age of two, three, you know, sometimes between one and three, things start to look a bit different. A child at three could be, they could be querying neurodivergence. They might not get diagnosed until they were five or six, at which point they've started school, at which point they're in education, in a formal setting. Um, and nobody's, really seen them to necessarily assess them to offer support you know or they will have been seen once and a bit of a plan's been put in place but then the resources aren't there to revisit and then look at how that child is changing and developing um and what we know is that early intervention for those individuals who need it is key and makes a lot of difference um but 
that then sort of boils down to where you live in terms of the services that are available to you or financially are you able to pay for it or not and that's a really uncomfortable situation to be in um you know for a lot of people because you're it's your child you know as a parent it's your child as a teacher or an early years practitioner professional you these are children that you care about that you're nurturing that you're supporting and they're not getting um what they require um and I think just basically what we need is more and I don't think that's what we're gonna get so that's when then the challenge arises you know in terms of this whole conversation we've been having about how does how does one improve the outcomes and how do we kind of support neurodivergent people in a in a better way that even from a young age the right support isn't necessarily there and I think when you for all individuals I've worked with no matter what level of support needs I kind of think about like the environment and the support and when you get the right support and the right environment it's like the sweet spot you know like that individual can thrive and I think for so many it's about working out what that is but then it's accessing it you know so a parent will know their child they'll say right this is what they need but does that exist can I get it funded do I have to fight at a tribunal like and go through the you know sort of like the courts to get this for them like then when I get it is there even a space at that specialist provision that I want or is the funding there to get the therapy into their mainstream school um you know can we get the one-to-one ta well yeah we can fund it but we can't actually recruit for that post or you know and all of these things that then become more of a society issue around funding and recruitment and you know logistics and all of that sort of stuff that is just like well probably another conversation for another day but it's a really big challenge for a lot of parents of um children with you know neurodivergent conditions um but if we get the right support at the right time, then you know that, you know, the outcomes can be really positive. What can we do then to help with that? Are there charities? You know, I, this is, yeah. I, I, as you were saying, it probably is a whole nother conversation, which we'll have to have again. But <laughs> what what can we be doing? And what can the parents out there who are struggling and are thinking, I've got to, got to fight for this now, what can they do? Is there places like, for example, your Instagram page, can they yeah. go in there and will that have information? And if so, tell us about it. Tell us how we can find it. Yeah, there's loads of brilliant um, social media um, accounts um, and charities out there that will offer free legal support that might help you with applying for an education, health and care plan um, that, you know, there might be costs further down the line, but they will offer a lot of free consultation, like come and tell us about your case. I'll see if I can help. Um, there are, um, it's really challenging because I feel like other countries seem to do this really well. And I feel like we've got like pockets of stuff. Um, but there are charities out there that are able to, um, support they offer things like um parent groups you know where you can go and chat to other parents and so looking at what's in your local area um doing a bit of a search on on instagram and facebook um and seeing what you know what's around locally but also there are national things that you know after think after covid like so many people have just gone online and so you can just do everything with whoever from wherever so actually if you wanted to have a consultation with somebody there are 
um, people out there. There are also an awful lot of Facebook groups. So, for example, if you are a parent who has had to pull your child out of school and you are home educating because school was not a safe place for them to be, um, there are groups out there where people share ideas or share like, oh, free days out or discounted days out, you know, things for people who are home educating. Um and then, you know, groups for parents who are going through tribunal process. So actually, what have you got? Where did you get it from? Did Was that NHS report enough? Did you need to pay privately? Like, has anyone got any contact details for, you know, therapists, educational psychologists? Um, kind of how, you know, how many weeks are we looking at waiting? What are the systems? Um, there are a lot of good um, Facebook groups, particularly out there for parents um, who can just share their experiences and lots of people who've gone through it so can offer advice or who are going through it. And I think sometimes that in itself is very validating, um, even if it doesn't necessarily give you the answer, just to know that you're not the only person um, because the whole process can be really draining and very traumatic for a lot of families that are going through kind of trying to get their child the right support. Um so I think just having a search out there, there's stuff, you know, like I know, for example, on my Instagram, on my stories, I, I don't think I actually make any of my own stories. I just shout everybody else's stuff. So there's loads <laughs> of things that come from these sorts of charities and people um, that I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Or, oh, that might be helpful. Um, and like following hashtags. So there's like a hashtag parents of autistic children and just seeing what's coming through there. There are quite a lot of parents now who are using social media as a way to share their journey, you know, from questioning neurodivergence through the diagnostics and then the support that's afterwards. So um, having a look for particular hashtags and just following a few accounts like that. Um, there are lots of kind of American ones, but actually there's quite a lot of UK based families as well, which I think is really helpful because the system in America is very different um, to here. But um, yeah, there's there's some really kind of there's a variety of different things depending on what you feel you need. If you need just to feel like somebody else out there is doing the same thing that exists, if you need some actual support, then there are places to go that, as I say, initially would probably offer free consultations and conversations. And then, of course, you know, if you're looking at an education, health and care plan, your local council. Um, but I know that they equally resource wise are often lacking. So um, they're there to do their best and that's what they're doing. But um yeah, it doesn't always achieve what we want it to achieve. It can fall short sometimes for some families. And what's your Instagram um, handle? Oh, my gosh. Um, I don't even know. It must be like... Do you at, not? <laughs> no, isn't that awful? I think it's like at Ruth Jones SLT. I'm just so not techie. I literally just like post stuff and... Yeah, but yeah. it's really important, I think, as well. If it helps families out there, that would be amazing. It's Ruth underscore Jones underscore SLT. Perfect. And last question, who inspires you uh, to do what you do today? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. I am. I'm inspired by every single individual that I meet because they all offer um, me a new way of seeing. Every individual that I meet is different. And that in itself is quite um inspiring just to just to keep meeting people to keep seeing like what who's out there and and what can what can I do to support and improve things and I think I also had a um supervisor who in my first role 
um, it was really full on, like as a newly qualified therapist, like going into, um, you know, a very busy residential provision with lots of, you know, um, high support needs individuals. Um, and she, from the offset, just like made me think about um, seeing these children through a different lens, like rather than like that whole oh, developmentally, they're about this age or like, you know, this is what they're... Like, just seeing them as, well, they just are who they are and actually wouldn't expect them to be developing in the same way because that's not how their brain's wired. And so before I even knew neurodiversity or kind of thinking about it in that way, she just inspired me to have a different viewpoint. And I think ultimately that's what's enabled me to develop this kind of enthusiasm and this passion for then working differently with these um this group of people that I'm fortunate enough to be part of their you know their lives and and the things that they are achieving and that they will go on to achieve which is is pretty cool (laughs) thank you so much you've been such an insightful and passionate guest so I really appreciate your time oh no my pleasure I oh people who like know me through work and my friends and stuff like will just know that this is just something I could talk about for hours um because it's just yeah. it kept going for hours and then I looked at the time and I realized it's nine o'clock at night yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no absolutely you've got kids as well haven't you so it's yeah. like you know at this time of night you're like bed yeah <laughs> that's it yeah like I'm now like okay right I've got like a like probably 45 minute to an hours and then it'll be off to bed and ready for the next day because we're on Easter holidays here so um I've got yes us too yeah got my eldest mm. at home um and it's like my last nice. two weeks of maternity leave so there's just all sorts of like all the feels going on and like busy days oh. and stuff so yeah how old's your youngest he'll be one in a couple of weeks Are you so looking like... to going back yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited to go and see the in my employed role really excited to see the students that I've like um worked with before and then I've got a couple of children independently who I've worked with before and then a few new ones which is really exciting just to kind of meet some new families and new children and and kind of explore that while still also in the back of my mind be like oh my gosh I'm totally incompetent I've just had a year of not doing anything like what (laughs) what do I even pack in a bag (laughs) so I'm hoping it will all start to come back to me fairly swiftly after these holidays oh well best of luck with it all and thank you so much for joining me in the podcast today it's been so great chatting with you thank you have a nice evening you too you too bye